on a series on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, it just seems very fitting to begin our time together by praying this. This is not something that we just pray religiously uh, or liturgically. This is something that we pray uh, with passion and with purpose and with meaning from the depths of our hearts. But it's also a great aligning prayer for all of us to pray together. It's one of the most comprehensive prayers in the scripture, and it is a prayer for believers. It's one that Jesus gave specifically to his disciples when they said, teach us how to pray. We want to be able to walk in that same level of communion and intimacy with the Father, and we also want to be able to do the things that we see you doing. So teach us how to pray. And so this is the format, the model, the outline that he gave to his disciples. And so let's pray this together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we bless your name today. We gather together in your name. And you've given us this great promise and this great reassurance that when we come together in your name, that you are there with us. We have felt your presence all morning long. Lord, whether we're praying your heart for the nations or whether we're lifting up your name in great worship and adoration, you are here. And so, Father, I pray today that your comfort would be upon those that are sorrowful and that are hurting. Father, I pray that reconciliation would come to relationships that are distant or damaged. Lord, I pray for those that are seeking after you and they're seeking after truth, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal Jesus to every seeking heart in this room today. I pray that all of us would be invigorated and filled in a new way with the life of your Spirit. Father, we pray that shame and condemnation would fall off, that the spirit of sonship would fill our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I wanna do a quick review on last week and then I wanna hit the ground running as time is escaping us. Last week, we talked about that first word in the Lord's Prayer, which very simply is our. It's not my father. It's not just your father. It's our father. And we're going to expound a little bit more on that today and the next week. But last week, we talked about this this really fascinating thought that when you and I pray our father, when we pray it together, when we pray it alone, just like we did today, It's actually doing a number of things at the same time. Number one, it's a prayer of gratitude. And we went into great length last week talking about the fact that you and I couldn't even approach God as father. Scripture says in Ephesians 2.13 that we were far away from him. We were distant from him, but we were brought near by the blood of Christ. And it's that same blood that has now invited us in to that privileged access of the holy courts of God. We get to pray because of what Jesus did. Number two, it's a prayer of identification. And that very simply means that now in Christ Jesus, our lives, there is this mysterious reality that all that Christ is, is now available for us as we now live in him. 
See, Christianity is not just a, a mental doctrine that we give some creedal assent to. It's not just a belief system. It's not just a moral code. Christianity at its core is that new life happens in Christ Jesus. Our spirits come alive. We're living in him. He's living in us. Don't ask me how to explain it, but I know that it's true. And that gives us hope. And so when we pray our father, we're saying we're coming to you on the basis of our relationship with Jesus and we live in him. And third, we said it's a prayer of declaration, meaning that the king who came is the king who left and he's the king who's coming back and our hearts long for the restoration of his kingdom. Today, we're gonna to shift gears a little bit and we're gonna talk about the fact that when we say our Father, it's also not just a prayer of gratitude and not just a prayer of identification or a prayer of declaration, it's a prayer of belonging. It's a prayer of belonging. Let me read this commentary to you. It says, the words our Father are not a form excluding the use of the more personal my Father in solitary prayer, but these words are a perpetual witness that even then we should remember that our right to use that name is no peculiar privilege of ours alone. It is shared by every member of the great family of God. Today, I wanna to talk with you for a few minutes about the fact that we are the people of God who belong to God. And the prayer, our Father, is a prayer of belonging. And one of the core objectives or the targets of the wall that I have this morning is very, very simple. I wanna open up our hearts and our minds to this one truth. And that is that we belong to the people of God. We are the people of God who belong to the people of God. And when we pray to God, God is desiring to expand the boundaries and the borders of our relationship with him to include his family because our relationship with God might be personal, but it's not private. It's not private. You know, if I've got four incredible children and I love them all very, very much, but you know, there are times when one of the kids tries to pull me away at the exclusion of what, uh, of what the family is doing. So whether, whether we'll you know, be eating together as a family or whether we'll, we'll be going somewhere together as a family or we'll be playing game night together as a family, if I ever find that one is just trying to pull me away or pull themselves away, it reveals to me that they haven't yet caught on to the fact that you belong to a family. There's a family identity. There's a family direction. There's a family culture. There's a family vision. There's a family calling. And all of my children belong to that family just as we all belong to God's family. So we're gonna go large and we're gonna whittle this all the way down and get local. And I'm gonna move pretty quickly here. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen people. Every time you see the word you here in 1 Peter 2, and let me just let you in on a little secret here. Most of the New Testament was written to groups of people. In fact, most of the New Testament wasn't written to just one church alone. It was written to a large region of churches. And so when we read this, to read it appropriately, and we don't really get this because we're so indoctrinated in Western individualism, but the Bible is actually written to a people, not just to a person. Now, if you're anything like me, all these years I've read the scriptures and I've always read it from a personal lens. And there's an element of that that's good, 
There's an element of that that's right, and we want to hold on to that, but we have to hold that intention with the fact that he wrote this to a people, and we belong to a people. It's not just a private faith or a private relationship. So he says, you, meaning plural, are a chosen people. Say, we are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. Say, we are a holy nation. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not at war with each other. They're complementary. Everything in the Old Testament was announcing what was coming in the New. Everything in the New was confirming what was said in the Old. They're not at war with one another. So actually what's happening here is Peter is actually referencing the identity of Israel and he's speaking now to the people called Gentiles, believers who believe in Christ now, who aren't necessarily Jewish in their descent, but have been grafted in to the family based on their relationship now with Christ Jesus. He is the cornerstone and the common denominator that pulls these two people together. And he says, now you are a people. Before you were just a scattered bunch of individuals, he says, now you are a holy nation. And that's our promise. That's the promise of those who weren't Jewish in descent. That's the promise of Gentile believers now, that as we say yes to the Messiah, Christ Jesus, we've been grafted in to this family, and now we are a holy nation. And all the implications that are inherent within that word nation exist and if we had time, we would really explore all that. It'd be really fun. Look at right. I want to focus on this phrase, though. It says, you are a people belonging to God. You are a people belonging to God. So the first thing that we need to understand as it relates to this as a prayer of belonging is that we, number one, are a people who belong to God. We belong to God. We are his treasured possession. We are the result of the price of the blood of Jesus. I referenced that verse earlier in Revelation 5, 9, 10, 11, 12. But right there in that passage of Revelation 5, Scripture says, you purchased men by the blood of Jesus. I'm okay with being one who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And I've not been purchased so that I can continue to live in a solitary, private, individual, disconnected way. I've been purchased so that now I can belong to God for his purposes, for his desires, for his will. And the beauty of this is referencing, if you understand anything, looking into the Old Testament, and the whole concept of redemption means to be bought out of a slave trade. If you remember the story of Joseph when his brothers sold him to the Midianites, those Midianites owned him. And then he sold Joseph to a man by the name of Potiphar and Potiphar owned him. Well, the beauty of this is that God out of love purchased us, not so that he could lord over us, but he purchased us so that we could be free from the dominion of the devil and sin. And so that we can live in free love and free will and free relationship with God. Now we are a people who belong to him. Once you were not a people. Without Christ, we had no identity, we had no affiliation, we had no allegiance, we had no responsibilities. We were not a people. But now we are a people and we belong to God. And the implication of that now is that we also belong to one another. Point number two, go with me to Ephesians chapter two. 
Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Now, if you remember the context, and all of Ephesians 2 is just brilliant. It's brilliant. This is where we find in Ephesians 2, 8, where it says, You've been saved by grace through faith, not, on, not by your own works, so that no man can boast. Right after that, he says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So he's placing this great value on every individual, but it's in the context of the fact that we belong now to God as the people of God. Later on in verse 13, as we mentioned last week, this is where he says, you who are once far away have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm just trying to paint some contextual pictures here for you. And now in verse 19, listen to what he says. Now you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Look at the parallel structure here, if you would. Look at the next statement. He says, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and you are also members of his household. So number one, he says, you are not a foreigner, you are a citizen. See that? You're not a foreigner. So, you know, many of you guys who visited other countries, you take your passport, you go in, everything's distant, everything's different, everything's unfamiliar, you are a foreigner. That is not your land, you do not belong there, you have no immunity, no protection, no privileges. If you violate law in that land, you will be severely punished. You have to appeal to the ambassador of your land. Here's what he's saying. He is saying that at one point of your existence outside of Christ, you did not belong as a citizen of my kingdom. You weren't loyal to my kingdom. You didn't care about what was important to the king, which is Jesus. You, you didn't associate with the kingdom. He says, but now that's not the case. You are not a foreigner in the kingdom of God. You are a citizen in the kingdom of God. So we belong to this great big family called the universal church of which we can identify ourselves as citizens of that kingdom. Look at the other analogy here. He says, you are also members of God's household. You're not just strangers. You're not just strangers. I was reading this book the other day called uh, The Relational Way. And uh, and then I was listening, I've been listening to all of these different messages, renewing my heart for the value of covenantal relationship within the kingdom and community of God. And I remember someone saying this. They said, when you enter into that level of depth of relationship, he called, he called it this, he says, you begin to build refrigerator rights. And I didn't catch that at first. And then I began thinking about that. And then I began thinking, you know, I, I don't feel very comfortable just going into anyone's home and opening up their, what is it about the refrigerator? This is, you know, I don't feel comfortable just rolling up into someone's crib and throwing open their fridge. Like, what you got going on in here? I don't, you know. And then immediately what came to my mind was, I, I thought about David, Paul Reese, because I don't know what it is, but I have just made myself, probably inappropriately so, but I've just made myself really, really at home in their house. And I'll just roll in, I'll open up the fridge and I'll go, man, I shouldn't be doing this, but I do it because I just feel so at home. That's my brother and I feel like that. But you know, think about someone just a stranger. You, you go anywhere, you don't go to my bedroom and don't go to my refrigerator. But you go anywhere else you wanna go. Refrigerator rights. But you know, as, as 
kids of the kingdom and as people that are involved in each other's lives, there is a level of relationship and familiarity in a good way and closeness and trust. And it don't matter what I got in here. I don't, I don't care who comes in here. You can see it and you can take it and it's yours. And sometimes we like to put on that front, but to really, really, really mean that, that's what he's talking about here, that we get to have that level of intimacy with God. And we also are invited into that level of intimacy with one another. It says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, I'm in verse 20, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I gotta read the rest of the verse because it's just so marvelous. Verse 21, in Christ, the whole building, which is us, so there's all these analogies. Number one, he's saying, you're not a foreigner, you're a citizen. You're not a stranger, you're a family member. You're not an isolated stone. You are being built together into this incredible building. It's joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now, I'm gonna ask for grace today because I'm gonna say some pretty difficult statements. And the only reason why they're difficult is because we are so conditioned with Western Americanism and Western Christianity. These are not difficult to people in the East, but some of the statements that I'm gonna say today, they run just, they cut against our individualism and our independence and our democracy. By the way, democracy is not a kingdom word. We were invited into a democratic process. We were invited into loyalty to a wonderful king. And there's a world of difference between the two. See, what we do is we, we tend to think of, if we're really honest with ourselves, and we probably never use this analogy, if we're really honest with ourselves, we tend to think of Christianity as, um, as a bunch of disconnected stones. And we want to be the best stone or the best brick out of all the piles of bricks. But the interesting thing is when I look at a marvelous spectacle of artistic and uh, work and architectural design, very rarely will a person go and pick out one stone and just go, look at that stone. That brick is just marvelous. I am just gonna, I want a postcard of that brick right there. No, no, we don't, we don't, that's weird. We don't do that. But yet we live our lives that way. We, wanna, we come to church to be the, a better us. We come to be a more polished stone. We don't come to be fit into something where nobody will see us. All they see is the glory and the grandeur of the whole. And is it okay for you? Is it okay if no one ever notices you or, or, or recognizes you or states how wonderful you served or how incredible you preached or how magnificent your gifts are? But what if they say, wow, you belong to a movement of people that is so countercultural, that, so, that is so different, that is so full of life and peace and power and joy and stability in the midst of chaos. I, I don't know what it is that you belong to, but the grandeur of this greater thing that you're connected to has got me curious. I may never be in charisma, I may never be on TBN, but I want to belong to a people that are changing the earth with the love of God and with the power and the vibrancy of his spirit. That is my prayer, it is my desire. Next point here, not only do we belong to God, not only do we belong to God's country and God's family, we belong to the church universal. We belong to the church universal. And here's how I'm describing this. And I got to be very, very clear. 
I am not speaking about universalism. I'm not speaking about some weird form of Christian science where we're all gods and this is just goofy. I'm not going to get into all that. What I'm saying by church universal is that we belong to every person who has identified themselves as a follower and a lover and a believer of Jesus, those that have passed away in the faith. All right, so the church I belong to consists of Moses and Abraham and Peter and Paul. It consists of Silas and Timothy. It consists of all those disciples. I belong to that band of people. They are a part of my family. That's my inheritance. That's the church universal. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, all of these incredible men of God and women of God, I belong to that. That, when we really allow that to settle in, the weight of that to settle in, that produces a responsibility inside of us. I mean, we're talking about missionaries like Jim Elliott and Hudson Taylor and William Carey who laid down their lives. And now for me to just live this disconnected, disenfranchised, disillusioned, isolated, private faith, it robs them of their inheritance. It robs me of my inheritance of joining in that generational synergy of faith, that legacy of life in the kingdom that has been passed down for centuries. And here, we need to understand this too. Not only am I connected with those who have gone before me, I am connected to those that are coming after me. I've got to live my life differently because of your children and grandchildren and my children and grandchildren and children that we may never meet will be affected by the way we live our life in the faith today. The way we live our lives now will affect people that are coming after us. This is why evangelism is so important. This is why worship and giving and prayer and intercession, this is why all these things are affecting someone bigger than just myself. We belong to the church universal. A number of great scriptures here. I'm gonna just speak them to you and you can jot them down for your notes. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. Great, great, great scripture there. And the other is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Those are great passages just on that concept of the universal church. Number five, we belong to the church global. Global. And here's the distinction it really is just a time distinction. And that is that the global church is the church of believers that exist on the timeline of here and now in the present, but they include every believer around the world. That's why I'm so delighted that we are building a house of prayer that cares about what God cares about, not just our own needs. And that's not to, dis, to belittle our needs. Our needs are important and God cares about them. But God also cares about the needs of people that we may never meet who are still associated as our family in the global church. And how awesome, because I'm just gonna prophesy here. How awesome, how awesome, how awesome when some of you go to countries that God's gonna call you to, whether short-term or long-term, imagine the testimony that you're gonna have when you meet someone and say, I've been praying for you for decades. I've never met you before, but in the spirit, I've been carrying you in my heart and I've been praying for you. My church has been praying for you. You know, there are believers who experienced that bombing in France by the injustice of corrupt people. 
Listen, those, imagine if you would, if that happened here in Colorado Springs. See, that's what we have to do. We have to imagine better. We have to enter into the solidarity of our believers around the world. That's what he's talking about when he speaks of the global church. There's three very, very simple ways that we can do that. Obviously, number one, we can pray. Number two, we can give. If you look with me in the book of Acts, chapter 11, and I don't have near as much time to go into all the depth of this, I just want to glaze over the concept here because it's a, it's a really beautiful, beautiful study when we take a look at Paul's response. Paul's response to the churches that he planted to a need of the body in Jerusalem. Look with me at Acts 11. We'll begin at verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So at this time in church history, the church of Jerusalem experienced a brutal, brutal famine. Now, an interesting study here is that when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he essentially gave them one resolute command. He said, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're gonna receive power, and I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then he says this, and into every part of the world, I want you to be a witness. I want you to carry this message of life and grace and the goodness of God. I want you to carry this message. Well, we find in Acts chapter eight, verse one, that that never happened. In fact, what happened is these guys were experiencing such great revival in Jerusalem that most of them just stayed. And that is one of the dangers of a move of God. One of the dangers of the move of God is that we'll just start to enjoy it and love it so much that we'll forget about people that he's called us to. We find this in Matthew 17, if you recall, when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he takes three of his buddies up there with him, Peter, James, and John, and the glory of God comes down, right? And how many of you guys love the glory? Love the glory. Oh, I love the glory. I love just hanging in the glory. Love sitting. I love soaking. And here's what Peter said. He said, man, I love soaking so much, Jesus. my translation. He said, I love soaking so much, Jesus. We ought to just build a church up here. We ought to just live up here in the glory forever. And Peter, and Jesus, what Jesus says, actually, God the Father has to rebuke Peter. He's like, shut it and Listen. Listen, now listen, things in the kingdom are not contradictory. The glory is good. God wants us in the glory. God calls us into the glory, but he also calls us into the glory so that we can take his glory to places that don't have glory. He calls us into light so that we can go into darkness. He calls us to receive comfort so that we can comfort the brokenhearted. He calls us into this divine interchange between heaven and earth, between encounter and engagement. And do you know what happened down there on the mountain? How many of you guys know what's going on at the mountain, down there at the bottom of the mountain? Down there at the bottom of the mountain, while these guys were having a revival, 
The other nine disciples were trying to cast out a demon from a little boy whose father out of desperation comes to the disciples and says, will you please help my son? A demonic spirit comes over him and it throws him to the ground and he froths at the mouth and I don't know where else to go. So he goes to the church and the leaders of the church are experiencing glory land and the disciples of the church are coming up short. And Jesus says, we got to go back down. See ya, Elijah. See ya, Moses. I'll talk with you later. But I've got demon-possessed kids that I've got to deal. I've got families I've got to restore. I've got hope I've got to bring to fathers. I've got training that I've got to do with disciples. I've got to equip these guys because I'm not going to be here anymore. There's a kingdom I've got to bring into this earth. It's the purpose of the glory. It's the purpose of the glory. You're a chosen people and we belong to a global family. God calls us to care about his global body around the world. So we can pray, we can give, and we can go. Listen, this also includes your state, includes your region. This would include your local community, all right? So even the city of Colorado Springs. I'm going to roll the dice here, and I'm going to go into our last point. Um, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go there. All right. Just, I got started late, so we're going to go to this last point. So we belong to the universal body. We belong to the global body. We also belong to a local body. It's important that we understand these distinctions, and they don't, they're, they're not at war with each other, or they shouldn't be at war with each other. Now, here's why this is so important. I'm just going to ride off this momentum of the spirit right now. Because I think there's a part of us that is on board with being a part of the, the global body. We like that. We can get on board with that. Because on some small measure, it doesn't really require that much of us. It doesn't require that much of us. We can, we, can, we can get by saying that we're connected to the global podcast body of Christ. No one, no one knows if we give, no one knows if we pray, no one knows if we serve, no one knows if character is being developed inside of us, no one knows if we struggle with sin, no one knows how we respond to our wife when we're under pressure. No one knows those kind of things, but we belong to the global body. And I love, being, I love belonging to the universal body. But let me just talk with you here for a few minutes about belonging to the local body in the context of understanding that there's a lot of different beliefs and there's a lot of different experiences. There's probably a lot of different emotions that surround this. I want to talk with you about this here for a few minutes. Number one, as a point of prayer. And number two, as a precursor to the formation of some semblance of membership that God would want to form here in Antioch Church. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And if you have any familiarity with the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is describing every believer in the body with the analogy, with the analogy of body parts. The analogy of body parts. And so if you ever experience any injury or damage or even loss of a part of your body, you begin to realize how important that part of your body is. In fact, I never think about my pinky toe until I stub it. And then I realize... It's there and it belongs and it's valuable and yeah, that hurts. Every member of the body 
is valuable. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 27. It says, now you, plural, are the body and each one of you, some translations say each one of you individually is a part of it. I've got a number of thoughts here that I want to share about local body membership. Number one, I want to talk with you about the biblical concepts of local body membership. Now, we all understand that we belong to a universal body, we belong to a global body, but I want to persuade you through this truth of scriptures to embrace God's invitation to belong more deeply to a local body. So, number one, we reference the fact that in a body, every member has value and every member has a fit and a function. Where do I fit and I function in the global body? Where do I learn how to develop and grow my gifts, whatever those gifts might be? Where do I learn how to mature as a son in the global and universal body? No, it's the local family and the local body that God has designed that gives every one of us an opportunity to grow in those arenas. Number two, it's the command of love. We all know that we're called to love each other. In fact, the Bible says that we will be known, the world will know us by our love for each other. Now, that's not the global body. No one watches how I interact with the global body and says, I wanna know who Christ is because of the way you love the universal body of Christ. No, no, they're watching real relationships. They're watching the way I walk through conflict with my brother. They're watching the way that I talk about my brother or sister when I don't agree with them. They're watching they're watching my tone, my posture, my heart, my voice. They're watching those things. They're watching yours. The Christian command to love one another is not just a global command. It is a localized command. Love looks like something. Love looks like someone. And love is more difficult in time and proximity. The longer I'm with you and the closer I'm with you and the more we're around each other, the more or less I like you. And the more or less you like me, it's just, it's just part of what it is. That's why God created the covenant of marriage to say, promise to each other that you'll love each other no matter what. And now as you enter into that covenant, let me mature you in love. When God calls a people, and it's always by calling, when God calls a people to commit to a local family, he's calling us to mature in love. That's what it is, because we all have personalities and idiosyncrasies, number three. The one another's. The culture of kingdom family. Do you know that in the New Testament, there are over 50 commands that are directed toward the way that we relate to each other. Love one another, serve one another, accept one another, encourage one another, bless one another, cover one another, comfort one another. Over and over again, we find these biblical commands on how we're to relate to each other. Let me just give you a couple for those of you who are taking notes. Romans 12, 15. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's not, I don't do that with the global body. I do that with my family. We are to mourn with those who mourn. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. This is where the scriptures command us to be kind towards one another, to be gentle towards one another, to be patient, to be compassionate, to be long-suffering. That's not towards the global church. That's towards my local family. Here's another passage of scripture, Hebrews 3.13. This says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. I can't encourage you through a podcast. Oh man. Either y'all getting tired or you, 
I cannot encourage, I cannot encourage Alinthia through a podcast. Would I lift his voice on there? You go, girl. That don't do nothing for her. I got to see her. I got to look at her eyes. You know, one of the beautiful things about assembly is you can see what's happening when you look in people's eyes. Take time. Get here early. Stay late. Go to life group. Don't just pass by people. Go to men's prayer. Go to women's events. Get involved and look at the state of affairs of the people that you're in family relationship with. Guest connect time, don't sit on your chairs. Family. That, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get here. This leads me to my next point. My next point, my next point is when you're part of a local family, you get to get rebuked. And I do too. We all get to get rebuked. <laughs> point number five, church discipline. All right, church discipline. So look with me, if you would, at Matthew, look, look at Matthew chapter 18, and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 5. And, and we laugh about this, but guys, it really is true. Like when I float around and I don't commit anywhere, no one can speak into my life. No one can see my blind spots. I don't let anyone see my blind spots. No one can call me out. No one can say the difficult things, and I need them. I do not like them. I need them. And I must choose by the grace and the spirit of God to embrace them. There's a lot of scriptural commands here as it results to church discipline, mediation, resolution. We're just going to look at one. This is in Matthew 18. I'm going to just pull this up here. We'll start at verse 15. You put that on the screen for me, Alyssa. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins or offends you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, if they have a teachable heart, if they humble themselves, if they're receptive, you've won them over to truth in a relationship of love. Verse 17. Oh, verse 16. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Notice it's not saying you go talk to two or three others about them. Can you No, no, no. He's saying you take them as witnesses, not to gang up on, but to just watch and to help objectivity. Because you might find that you go and your friends might say, you know what, Jade, you said that like a jerk. And they get the opportunity to call that out in you. And they may, have the, they may say, the reason why they're not listening to you, though you're right, the way you're approaching this is wrong. And that's why you bring objective counsel. But the heart is because you're trying to win this person over into the family and into relationship and into truth. Now, if that doesn't work, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. There's only two times the word church is used in, in the uh, Gospels. The first is in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia. The next is here in Matthew 18. Now, here's the interesting thing. The people that Jesus was speaking to didn't even know what the church was. The church hadn't been founded yet. But here's what Jesus is saying. Those who are committed, who are dialed in, you don't want someone who, I'm not gonna bring a stranger into a mediation situation, right? There's no, there's no chips on the table. There's no investment. You don't belong here. 
By the way, I think it's interesting that in our consumer Christian culture, it's interesting that the people who raise the loudest voice against things that are happening are the people who aren't even vested. You're not serving, you're not giving, you barely come here, you're not in a life group, but you wanna complain about everything that goes on. Uh, that's, not, that's not our church, guys, that's not our church. That's not here, that's not here. But I, I heard stories about stuff that happens out there and listen, if you're not committed, if you ain't got stock in the company, you don't get to vote. We don't really care what you think. We're trying to figure this junk out ourselves, all right? We're trying to figure this out. But I want to figure it out with the people that are in the foxhole with me. Those are the ones. We're going to fight. We're going to argue. We're going to disagree. We're going to debate. We're going to do all those things. And then here you come with your little idea. You don't have a spot at the table. But we want you to. We want you to. The table's open. All right? The table's open. We want you to have a seat at the table. You belong at the table. But don't not sit at the table and complain about the food. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I asked you for grace. I asked you for grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. If you don't know the story of what's going on here, Paul, who is the apostolic founder and father of this church in Corinth, he's got to lay down some correction. Now, what's going on in the church of Corinth is gross immorality is happening. There's a son that's sleeping with his father's new wife. What do you call that? Stepmom? Yeah. And so Paul's like, what are you doing? Stop it. Stop this. This is sin. This is wrong. And this is what he says. He says, if he does not listen to you, he goes, kick him out of the church. He says this, hand him over to Satan. Now, there's a lot of theological implications for this, not the least of which is this. I think that there is an inherent covering when you belong to a local family. You guys don't realize how much we pray for you. I mean, pray for you. And I call, some of you I call by name. Those of you I don't know, I can't call you by name. So I just pray for Antioch. But if you're not connected to Antioch, I don't know who's covering you. I don't know what support system. I don't know what spiritual reinforcement. I don't know what walls are being built around your life. I pray to God some pastor out there is praying for the, for the floaters. <laughs> and this is what he says. He says, kick him out of the church. And he says, hand him over to Satan. And this is essentially what he was saying. Remember, remember in this day, in the context of this culture, everything in life was communal. Everything in life was built upon the strength of relationship one with another. So he's saying, disassociate them from the strength and the vitality and the blessing and the benefit of life in community. And they'll learn. And he did. But look right here at verse 12 of chapter 5. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And what is he speaking of? He's speaking of those who have committed themselves to membership in a local family. Point number six, scripture tells us as shepherds, I would be one of the shepherds of this house. Scripture tells me in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, 2, it says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Now, does that mean I'm supposed to shepherd every single person in Colorado Springs? Am I supposed to shepherd all the nations of the earth? No, it means that there are people that are under my care that I am supposed to shepherd. And how am I supposed to know who I'm shepherding unless people say, pastor, I belong to this family. I want the shepherding that is available in this house. 
Not the shepherding movement, but the shepherding biblically, okay? Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. This is incredible. Verse three, not lording it over those who have been entrusted to you. Now, you may not realize the spiritual dynamics going on, but I guarantee you, I feel the weight of this. Those of you who say Antioch is my home, I'm a member of this family, you have been entrusted to me. And you've been entrusted to the leadership of elders when that leadership of elders is fully formed. You've been entrusted to the spiritual oversight, authority, and care of a body of people. And you know what? I'm going to give an account. Now, I'm not going to give an account for people who, who aren't part of the family. And thank God for that. I'm not having to give an account for people who just show up and, and, and they leave and they never get involved in anything. But people who say, this is my home, I'm, I'm going to stand before the Father. And he's going to ask me how I prayed for you, how I treated you, how I discipled you, how I instructed you, how I cared for you, how I created systems that enabled your spiritual growth and development. I will be held account for that. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I'm almost done, guys. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is Paul addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says this, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. So I'm supposed to keep watch over you. I'm supposed to keep watch over a designated group of people. That's the local family. And I'm here to tell you today that there is a grace and there is a strength and there is a power when you hook into that availability. Now, it doesn't just go one way. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13. I started with my responsibility first. Now I can rail on yours. I can lovingly point out your responsibilities. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Here we go. It says, obey your leaders. Now, let me just put a clause in there. To the degree that that leader is living according to the principles of God and teaching truth. Don't just go and obey. Don't go obeying every leader. You better make sure that leader is living an exemplary lifestyle full of the love and the life of God and they are married to truth. Don't ever follow what a leader tells you to do if it does not line up with scripture, including myself. I should have got a big amen on that one. <laughs> Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Let's save that for later because there's a lot that we can talk about. They keep watch over you as men who must, who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Paul asked for his churches to pray for him often. And here's what I'm gonna ask you. As you pray the Lord's Prayer, remember that your prayer is a prayer of belonging that you belong to the universal church, you belong to the global church. And for those of you who choose by revelation of God's spirit and by the commitment of your will and character, you can choose to belong to a local family, a local body. There's a lot of responsibility that's involved in that. In fact, throw Ephesians 4.16 up. I just reminded of this verse as I walked in today, Ephesians 4.16. There is an incredible transaction of life that happens when you choose to belong to a local family. From him, meaning Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. How? As each part does its work. Imagine a Mr. Potato Head you know, you pull all those pieces apart. Like the body of Christ locally can be like Mr. Potato Head. 
There is no life. There is no life. That there's no blood. Your every limb of my, if, it's, if every limb of my body grows as blood comes to it, and the only way blood comes to it is if it's connected. So there is a spiritual transaction that is happening just by being connected to a people. There is a flow of life that is entering into your spirit. There is a momentum of God's spirit that is available for you. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. Thank you, Jeff. You're awesome. And the many others that are in support of this. Oh, man. Let me, let, me, let me make this clause real quick. There might be some of you who are new. Today might be your first day. You might, you might be here for a whole year and, and for whatever reason, you might be getting healed. You might still be just figuring things out. You might still be watching this house to see whether or not this is the tribe God has called you to. And there is grace for all of that. Here's my appeal to you. My appeal is this. Avoid the danger. Avoid the pitfall of taking a year long journey to figure every church out. Avoid that. Come on up, Jonathan, please. Avoid that, all right? Because we can create a lot of good reasons why not to get connected. If you've been hurt, friend, get healed. Forgive your local body. Forgive your previous pastor. Forgive that elder, that friend, whoever it might be. Your life, the life of our city, the life of generations to come depends on your health and get involved. Now, some of you guys cannot, and I respect that. Some of you legitimately cannot. Time, volunteer commitments, etc. But listen, every one of us can give something. If you know that you're gonna be here on a Sunday morning, come 30 minutes early and help set up some chairs. Stay a little bit later and help tear down. Maybe there's things that you can't commit to throughout the week, but you know you're gonna be here as an attender at Antioch. Friend, get connected, get involved, pray. Pray for your local body. Pray for Antioch. Pray for our vision. Pray for your leaders. I need your prayers so desperately. Pray for the hurting and the broken in our house. Pray that we'd be a harvest family. Next week, we have our fifth Sunday, Family Sunday. And I'm gonna talk with you about some vision, some new vision I have for the family. I want all of you guys to come. Come and listen to that vision and choose to dial your heart in. Choose to pray for the global body. Choose to pray for